I want to welcome you if you're visiting with us this morning. Um, I want to go ahead and just let you know, we'll just kind of get this out of the out of the way up front. We are the very best church in town. Um, I'm telling you by a mile, it's, you're going to be amazed and wowed by us. If you haven't been already, I'm being facetious, I hope you appreciate that, that I, uh, I often say, and someone asked me about this this week, why do you say we're not the best church in town? Uh, let, me, let, me, let me add to that. I don't think there's a such thing as a best church. I think there's just the church, and I think they're different. And um, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, this may your, be your one installment with us. I hope you hear a fondness for the people of God in the world, and especially here in Greenville. Not just this church. We have a really high view of the church in Greenville. We pray for a church each week, in fact, and um, we realize that one church does not fit everybody. And everybody is, is, has different places that they are in their journey and things that they uh, need to grow in and hear. And um, if we're talking about a, a church that is preaching and teaching uh, the true things about Christ, um, there are so many different beliefs within the same faith. There's so much room within that that folks can find a home that's not here, and we can celebrate that. So, but if you are with us and you're looking for a church home uh, for the first time this morning, we want you to know that you are welcome. We do count it a privilege to spend the time with you. Uh, at the end of the morning, we'll have somebody at this little welcome table over here where we can give you a packet of information about who we are, and you can leave with sort of a sense of what we are, what we believe, where we stand as a people. Uh, we are going to pray for a church this morning as we climb into the Word. We're going to pray for what was formerly uh, known as Johnson Street Church of Christ. This is their first Sunday at a new location on Jack Finney uh, Boulevard down there um, by Lamar Elementary. Uh, I don't know what the new, ma- new name of the church is. I-, I-, I thought it should be Jack Finney Church of Christ. And um, I reached out to Randy Daw and asked him if that's what it's going to be, and he, he didn't think that would be the name. So I can't, I don't know what the name is, but the Lord knows the name. So we're going to pray for them this morning. Uh, somebody mentioned already that it looked like Easter morning with folks pouring in there in their Easter best. So um, we can celebrate for them um, being in a new facility and what that means and being in a new location. So let's pray for them. God, we are so thankful for another church in our community, the chance to lift them up this morning. We are thankful that you have provided the means for them to um, follow what they believe to be your leading to relocate into not only a a new um, location but a brand new facility, Lord. We pray that you will use those things as those very temporary things um, in a way to impact people eternally. Lord, we pray that folks that don't know you may be drawn to visit um, this uh, new church uh, or in their new, new location and that they will be drawn to walk with you and with your people, Lord. We pray for Randy this morning as he's preaching, Lord. I pray that he is um, uh, he has been well-equipped this week. I pray that he's been fueled by worship. Lord, I pray that it will uh, have an impact as, as he stands and delivers, that you'll use it for your own glory and to grow the kingdom. Uh, Lord, we uh, thank and, uh, just thankful for the privilege of lifting them up this morning. Lord, I want to pray for how we'll spend these next few minutes. Lord, I pray that you would use this time... I'm entrusting this people to you and entrusting myself to you in these few minutes. Uh, We are a frail, um, uh, fragile, uh, feeble, human bunch. And uh, Lord, we recognize though in this time each week that we are hearing an eternal word and we are exposing, um, we are climbing into a message that travels into 2017 um, and can impact lives in eternal ways. So it's a profound moment, Lord. We pray that you would use this time um, for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We are starting a new section of Scripture in, or a new passage in Ephesians, chapter 4, that we're entitled, entitling the Holy Walk series. Ephesians, chapter 4. I had a page number for you last week, and I can't remember what that was, 977 or something like that is what comes to mind. If you need a page number in the seat in the bottom, or the, the, the Bible that's in the seat bottom in front of you. Sometimes it's helpful, I think, in learning the right thing to do um, that you have to experience the wrong thing to do. 
I enjoy some of those videos that those mishap videos you see them on Facebook from time to time where you just have to cringe you can't you want to look away but you can't and um, you kind of wish you had when somebody's crashing I don't know what it is about this parkour thing this free running thing but man I'm telling you these guys the stuff that they're doing and the falls that they take you know hopefully you would think that those events where they really hurt themselves would lead them to maybe running on the sidewalk <laughs> just something crazy zany like leaping around in a gym or something, you know, instead of leaping around on hard concrete objects. I think life has a way of teaching us the right thing to do when we experience the wrong thing to do. You put your hand to a hot stove as a little kid, and then you're more inclined to have a better idea where you should put your hand after experiencing the heat of the stove. You learn a good thing by the pain of a bad thing. Kids that play in the street after a few near misses, hopefully their yard is looking a lot better than it did before they were playing in the street. Paul is using a passage here this morning in Ephesians chapter 4 that in some ways are this technique of teaching. In some ways what Paul is going to do in verses 17 through 19, where we're going to be this morning, is he's going to show us what the holy walk of the people of God should look like by showing us first in chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, what it shouldn't look like. In some ways, chapter 4, verses 17 through 19 are the hot stove and the street. So we're going to climb into this passage this morning and consider what the holy walk of the Christian should look like by first considering what it shouldn't look like. I'm going to read it in one chunk here, verses 17 through 19, and then I'm going to break it down in three sections this morning. We're going to spend the majority of our time sort of unpacking these verses, and then I just have a couple of brief thoughts that I think are fitting response to what we've exposed. Chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The first little section I want to spend our, our um, time on is in, in chapter 17 or chapter 4, verse 17, uh, sort of the first two-thirds of that verse. So I want to reread that and let's sort of unpack that a little bit. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Hey, first of all, Paul is calling attention to what he's saying here in this passage when he's saying, I say and I testify to the Lord. To put it in sort of, uh, I'm trying to remember if it was hee-haw or um, what show it was where somebody was, I declare some Mini Pearl or somebody like that is shouting, I declare. That's what Paul's doing at the beginning of this passage. I declare. So what he's saying here is pretty important about what unfolds. And he says that you are no longer to walk as the Gentiles. Now walk is sort of shorthand for your way of life is no longer to look like the Gentile way of life. The book of Ephesians in some ways is a book about walking. If you've been paying attention over the course of our journey in the book of Ephesians, you'll see this word walk come up over and over and over again. We saw it in a really key passage, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, walking according to the world, walking according to the prince of the power of the air. You were by nature children of wrath. You were walking dead in your trespasses and sins. We also saw it later at the, in, at the beginning of chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It's nice that he develops this sense of life, uh, this journey of life, this way of life as a walk. Very small, very insignificant, but very important. He calls them to no longer walk as the Gentiles. Now, here's what's interesting about that encouragement. They are Gentiles. The Ephesian church is largely made up of Gentiles. He's already addressed them as Gentiles. He's already spoken to their identity, maybe their birth identity, in Ephesus there as being Gentiles. But there's a beautiful encouragement in chapter 2, verse 11, where he sort of um, brings some new meaning 
to their identity. Listen to what he says over here in chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you, you Gentiles, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Look, listen to what he says next. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, the Jew and the Gentile. Paul, in his mind, really had three races. And these are the first two that he's speaking of here. The Jew and the Gentile. You're either a Jew or you're everybody else. The Jew and the Gentile. He himself is our peace who has made us both, the Jew and the Gentile, one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man. Now that word, one new man, could also be translated one new humanity. We could say one new race. See, Paul had a third race theology that comes up often in his letters. And this is what he's speaking of here. There's Jews and there's Gentiles and then there's this new humanity. This new third race that he's speaking of here. He might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, the, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Paul worked really hard at developing this concept of a third race. For Paul, there's just Jews, Gentiles, and then the church. I found a passage in 1 Corinthians where he even said as much. Listen to what he says. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks. Greeks, he's using interchangeably with Gentiles there. Or to the church of God. There's just three races for Paul. The Jew, the Gentile, and this new humanity. This new race that's called the church. And Paul here in Ephesians chapter 4 is defining this third race and how they should move and marking them off of what their life should look like by showing first here in verses 17 through 19 how this third race should not walk like in their old race as a Gentile. What I want to do in this next section, beginning in the last little part there of verse 17 all the way through verse 18, is I want us to do sort of a little magic school bus trip. I couldn't remember the name of the show that I saw when I was a kid, and it's so funny that Jerry Morris was the guy that called out in a worship service, it's Magic School Bus. I couldn't remember the name of this thing. But Magic School Bus had these little episodes where uh, it was a movie or something that I saw when I was a kid, from what I recall, where these people were shrunk down and they went into the human body, and they made this journey through the human body. Um, and I still am not sure that, it, that, that we're thinking about the same thing, but Magic School Bus does that. So it'll just serve as a little tool for us for the next few minutes. We're going to take a Magic School Bus trip into the Gentile. Okay, we're going to start with the mind, and we're going to end up making our way to the hand via the heart. That's where we're going to spend the majority of our time this morning on this little trip. This verses here at the end of chapter 4 verse 17 that it points out the mind and then it moves to verse 18 to three more things let's look at them for the sake of context now this I say in testifying the Lord you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in first the futility of their minds second they're darkened in their understanding third they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them fourth due to their hardness of heart we're going to go to a fifth thing here in a moment in verse 19, but those four things is how I want to spend these next few minutes. First of all, on the futile thinking. What marks off the old race, the race of the Gentile, this marks off the, the mind of the unbeliever, is that they are occupied with futile things. This word in the Greek uh, means transitoriness. 
temporariness, emptiness. It means folly and ultimate pointlessness. Okay, some of you were adults when you came to know the Lord, and you can think about your life before you came to, the, came to know the Lord, or you may have friends or family, or some of you may not be believers. You came with a friend this morning. It may be hard for you to hear that this passage is saying that your thinking is, let's go to those words again, transitory, temporary, empty, folly, and ultimately pointless. That might be hard to hear. It might not be a best approach to share Christ with someone and point that out to them. But this is what the passage is saying here is the mind of the Gentile is occupied with very temporary matters. The Greek Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint, uh, this word shows up most frequently in the book of Ecclesiastes. And right off the bat, if you think about how Ecclesiastes reads, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. In some ways, a guy that's experienced everything life has to offer, a guy named Solomon, summarizes life as vanity because it's so temporary. Those words could all apply. It's so transitory, and it feels like emptiness and folly and pointlessness. The word is also associated with idol worship, this vanity and futility. I want to share a passage with you from the book of Isaiah, and um, you can just listen or you can turn there with me. It's Isaiah chapter 44. It's one of the most graphic passages, um, most uh, well-illustrated passages, I would say, on idolatry in our Bibles. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Okay, we're going to speak to that message that I just pointed out to you a moment ago. If we're talking with someone who's not a believer, and we're pointing out to them, hey man, your mind is occupied with something that is pointless, your minds are occupied with something that's temporary. Okay, this is the way we want to round that out. This is how. Your, your minds are occupied with something that does not profit. That's what the mind of the idolater is like. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? He asks the question as if who in the world would do that? But then he illustrates exactly who's doing that. Listen to how the passage continues in verse 12. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. Then he becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. That's a little bit hard to understand. This next one's really clear. Listen to the carpenter. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. And here's how that whole thing unfolds. He goes and cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of what he's nourished and what he's fed and what he's grown in the woods and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes some bread and he also makes a god and worships it. It's futile. It's vanity. He makes a god out of this thing and he worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. And over half he eats meat, he roasts it and is satisfied, and he warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. Man, it's heartbreaking to think about that mind that's going to be occupied with something so vain so temporary, so small. He says, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, 
Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? The mind of the Gentile is occupied with futile things. This word futile conveys the idea of a life with no real eternal meaning or goals. No real eternal purpose. Now, I want you to hear me say this, and maybe if you have a chance to talk with a loved one or a friend, we are not saying that folks that are unbelievers, these Gentiles, before they came, became the third race, are up to nothing. Certainly, they're up to something. And there are folks that are unbelievers that are doing wonderful things in the world today. Man, really, you think of some of the, the, some of the things that people are about in the world today to say it's only the believers that are up to good things. Unbelievers can do some wonderful things. But we've defined this and refined this to make sense of it. It's not saying that lost folks are up to nothing. It's just saying that they're not up to anything that's meaningful in eternity. That's the difference. The Gentile, before he or she comes to Christ is just not up to anything that's meaningful in eternity. It's like living a disposable life. I was thinking about, you know, for me, the visual aid of what's disposable is great value. The stuff at Walmart, you know, the cheapest stuff, you know, you go in there and you want to buy your name brand stuff, which is what I prefer to buy, but I don't prefer to go to Walmart. I'm just, just confessing I'm not a Walmart guy unless I absolutely have to go to Walmart. But the cheapest stuff on, the, on the, the shelf there is great value. And you can visualize it. You know what I'm talking about? It's white. It has blue lettering on it. Just imagine a whole life that's characterized by being a great value life. You drive a great value car, blue and white. It's white with blue lettering on it. It says great value. You live in a house that's built with great value materials. You wear white clothing with blue threads. Man, what a shame. You want to just grab that person and say, don't you want to be involved in something that's going to last beyond next week? Is there anything about your life that's not disposable? That's the Gentile mind. They are occupied with really what, in, in the light of eternity, is disposable matters. They're occupied with things that will not matter beyond bedtime in a lot of cases and certainly beyond the next few weeks or months. This futile thinking, if you want to summarize it with a phrase, the mind of the Gentile or the mind of the unbeliever is a preoccupation with temporary things. Now remember, Paul is encouraging them. That's not the way you are to move. The Gentile mind is preoccupied with temporary things. Secondly, they're darkened in their understanding. Look at the phrase there beginning in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, exactly like I just said. <laughs> They're characterized by futile thinking and a lack of understanding, and those things go together. Futile thinking and a darkened understanding. Now, again, we're not talking about smarts. We're not talking about what the Gentile mind might be up to because the Gentile mind could be brilliant in the eyes of the world. They could be splitting the atom and doing some amazing things, going into space, but the word for understanding here is not about smarts. The word for understanding here is a nice place to give you a sense of where to park it. A very familiar passage to love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the word for understanding. We're not talking about smarts. We're not talking about intellect. And the, the, the mind of the unbeliever, the mind of the Gentile, is darkened. And third... They are alienated from the life that comes from God because of ignorance. Let's look at how it reads exactly. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance or the ignorance that is in them. The Gentile walks in a preoccupation with temporary things. The Gentile unbeliever is walking in darkened understanding. And the third thing here is they are separated from the life that comes from God. That's the way you could read that. 
because they don't know him. Think about it, what's equated here. Knowing him is the difference between life and eternal death. And those who don't know him are living a living death. That Ephesians 2 passage that I just quoted a minute ago. You were walking in your trespasses and sins. You were by nature children of wrath. You're walking according to the prince of the power of the air. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. The Gentile and the unbeliever is walking sort of a living death. If we're traveling around the body in this magic school bus, at this is the point where we realize this, this vessel that we're examining is terminal. We're realizing as we're moving around this body, call hospice and get them in here because this thing is dying. This thing is living, really a living death. And then the fourth thing is hard-heartedness. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. If you've read the story of the Exodus, you know that there is a beautiful illustration of Pharaoh's heart over the course of the Exodus story. With every declaration from God through Moses, Pharaoh grew harder of heart. He grew more resistant to God. The Pharisees also demonstrated this sort of disposition In Mark chapter 3, I'll just share a passage with you. You're welcome to turn there. It's nothing spectacular, but it gives you a little glimpse into hard-heartedness. Mark chapter 3, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, they being the Pharisees, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. The Gentile is... If you want to understand sort of a visual of this, but with the hardened heart, that they have a progressive insensitivity to spiritual things. And what might even be characterized, as you see right here, an opposition to spiritual things. Now, so far, what we've gathered up on this little magic school bus trip into the Gentile is we've realized that they are preoccupied with temporary things. Okay? That old race is preoccupied with temporary things. They're darkened in their understanding. We're not talking about smarts. We're talking about understanding the things of God. They're alienated from the life of God and in fact are living sort of a living death. They are by nature children of wrath. And fourth, they have a progressive insensitivity and even opposition to spiritual things. Now in verse 19, we're going to land in the hand. We started at the head and the mind, and we moved to the heart, and now we're going to move to the hand in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. If our magic school bus trip into the life of the unbeliever moved now to his or or her hands, we would find those hands occupied with all manner of sensuality. And all manner of impurity. And we would also find this word callous, what the word means in the Greek, is insensitivity to pain. If you move to the hand of the unbeliever, what you would find there is an insensitivity to pain. The stove doesn't hurt them anymore. And the street doesn't scare them anymore. The bumpers don't hurt them anymore. There are little receptors in your body, different types of receptors in your body. There's something called a proprioceptor that has to do with where you know where you are in space. Proprioception, you may have heard that term before. There's a little vessel, or not a a vessel, there's a little nerve-type thing in your body that's called a nociceptor. That, That is your pain sensitivity. And these guys, their nociceptors are so numb that they can't even feel the pain of sin anymore. So they have given themselves up to all manner of sin. The oven doesn't burn anymore, and the car bumpers don't send them to the yard to play. They've surrendered 
to sin. They've embraced it even. I want you to notice how this thing is unfolded. We followed a journey from the head to the hand. And we looked at the mind and the thinking and the understanding of the unbeliever. And we moved from there to the heart. And we moved from there to the hand. And I want you to notice that what the mind is occupied with and what the heart is influenced by will affect the hand every single time. If your mind is occupied with sinful matters, your hand is going to express it eventually. That's what we've seen here. The hand follows the head and the heart every single time. Now, I had a big plan for this morning. I told Luke a bit, Luke and Christy about it yesterday, and we laughed about this plan that I had of following the magic school bus into the body and then sort of doing like a um, trans, like a, like a beam me up kind of thing over to now the third race body. And I thought, you know what, that's kind of dumb and it's kind of clunky. So I have a little different plan. I just want to just speak from my heart about two things right now. I want to speak about two things that I'm burdened about for our church, for you as individuals, you as families. I'm burdened about for myself. I want to speak to the matter of the hand and I want to speak to the matter of the, the mind. First of all, the hand. I do have a couple of passages I'd like for you to turn to. 1 Corinthians is the first. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If we've spoken so far about the old race, the Gentiles, before they came to know the Lord, if we've spoken about the mind and the actions and the life of the unbeliever, then now in contrast to that, it's fitting that we just spend a few minutes just considering what the life and the mind of the believer should look like. Now, Paul's going to do a beautiful job of that in these next few weeks. Really, for a number of passages, he's going to bring out great detail. But I just want to apply, if I can, two things from a few other passages before we do that these next few weeks. And first, I want to deal with the hand. If the hands of unbelievers and the hands of, un- of Gentiles are about sensuality and all manner of sin, the hands of believers are to be about something different altogether. Just consider this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know, now he's writing to a church that is, is about, really honestly, in some strange way they are believers, yet they are about all manner of sensuality and sin. This is a very worldly church. And he's writing to a very worldly church that in some way is a third race, but yet they're still living in the second race. And here's what he says to this worldly church. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Listen to what he says. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's shooting really straight with a third race people. And he's saying if you're continuing to live in that second race, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. I'm not reading anything into that. If you're continuing to live like idolaters, consumed with temporary things, heaven's not for you. That's what he's saying. Man, I don't have to do any foisting, any hoops, any gymnastics to impose, superimpose that message in there. That's clearly what he said. Now listen to what he says next. And such were some of you. Such were some. Some of you, some of you used to be characterized by being involved in sexually immoral things. Such were some of you. You were idolaters. You were adulterers. You were men or women practicing homosexuality. You were thieves. You were greedy. You were drunkards. You were revilers. You were swindlers. But it's a were. You were washed. That's not who you are anymore. You're a third race now. You have a different identity. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus 
Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's not who you are. Man, let's just deal with it. It's just right there in black and white. That's not who you are. When we look at the hand of the third race, what they should be about, it's not these things. They shouldn't be about sexual immorality. They shouldn't be about idolatry. They shouldn't be about adultery. They shouldn't be practicing homosexuality. They shouldn't be thieves. They shouldn't be greedy. They shouldn't be drunkards. They shouldn't be revilers. They shouldn't be swindlers because they were washed. They were hard won. They and we were sanctified. We were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's not who you are. That for me travels so much more than, man, you really shouldn't do that sexually immoral stuff. Try that with your young people, families. Try that with your kids. Don't do that anymore. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't be about that thing. Just if that's all you're going to give them, you've given them a lot less than what you can give them when you say, guess what? Don't be about that because that's not who you are. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were hard won. So that thing that's going on in your life that's not supposed to be there, if you're feeling some pain over it, that's a good thing. Remember, that's the contrast with the Gentile who's grown callous. They don't feel pain anymore. No nociceptors. They don't feel the sting of pain of sin anymore. If you are involved in some of these things that I just listed and you go, man, I'm seeing the, 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 uh, the, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm seeing this incongruity in my life where I see some of that stuff going on and I'm like, wait a second, that's not who I am. I hear what he's saying and I believe it. And you feel some pain associated with that? That's signs of life. That is hope. It's when you're involved in these things and you're not feeling any pain in those things and you're just giving over that you're looking and sounding a whole lot more like an unbeliever and a Gentile. Pain in association with sin should be welcome. Hebrews has a wonderful passage that speaks to the pain of feeling the sin. If you'd like to turn there, you're welcome. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. You can listen. Just listen. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The Hebrews preacher is writing to a church, and he's calling them to a holy walk as well. And he says, you know what? In your resistance to sin, I don't see anybody bleeding yet. You're not trying so hard that you're bleeding. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. If you've got some stuff in your life, some of these things that I listed here, and you're going, ah, I see in the incongruity there, and you're feeling some pain, or you're feeling some burden, and you're feeling some shame, and you're knowing that God's discipline is right on your life, that's a good thing. Welcome it. It says here that you must be a son. Listen to what he says next. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. If you're feeling some pain over sin in your life, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. I want you to welcome the pain of discipline knowing that it's a sign of sonship. 
before we even this next few weeks get into Paul's contrast with this, this is the this is the street, this is the hot stove, and this is where we want to put our hands and want to put our lives. This is the manner of walk. We can deal with these couple other passages and bring to light that there's lots of stuff in our life that shouldn't be there anymore because it's supposed to be past tense stuff. And that if you feel some pain in association with that, that's a good thing. I've walked through some of that pain with some of you. Brad has as well, and Scott has as well. Your life group shepherds have walked through some of that pain associated with sin and the aftermath of sin in your life. Man, that's a good thing. You should celebrate that. That's all part and parcel to the holy walk. We should have holy hands. And the other thing, just speaking from my heart on this matter, is that we should have minds that are not occupied with futile stuff. Our minds should not be occupied with futile stuff, but instead should be occupied with eternal things. It's lost folks whose minds are constantly occupied with disposable matters. It's lost folks that are living like in this great value environment. It is futile to spend your time thinking about stuff that won't matter past your bedtime. Man, I'm not immune to this either. I hate that sometimes when I'm preaching, I have the sense when I'm either, either preaching or in the aftermath that I came off like I got it all figured out. Man, let me just be really honest with you and really open with you. I don't have it all figured out either. And these messages clobber me as well, where I think about how do I spend most of my time up here? I spend a lot of my time thinking about how I can ride my bike faster. I'm being really honest with you. I spend a lot of time thinking about how I can feel better and be more fit, where I can um, brave these next 20 years or whatever, where I'm not all decrepit, where I can, I can actually do some stuff. I spend a lot of time thinking about those things right here. And man, how disposable is that, frankly? There's nothing wrong with thinking about riding a bicycle. There's nothing wrong with thinking about being fit and healthy. But you've got to recognize that really it's just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. I mean, really, think about that. That's all it is. It's disposable in the long run. It's disposable. I'm not going to sell my bikes. Y'all, you can't expect that you're going to, Jerry Morris, you're not going to get a good, good deal on my bicycle as a result of this message. <laughs> but man, I want my mind to be occupied on some eternal matters. You know what's really honest? I'm going to be really honest about something else too. I have something that sort of forces me to do that. And it's called what I'm doing right now. Because Sundays are relentless. They're coming. And I know that I'm, if I'm not occupied with some eternal matters, then I don't, I've got nothing to talk about when I stand up here on Sunday morning. And you'll see right through that. In 14 years, have we had a Sunday where I stood up here and just told some jokes or did a little tap dance or something, and that was it. Sunday's coming for me. I've got a little crutch there that you don't have. And if you paid attention when I prayed at the very beginning, I prayed that in some ways over the course of this sermon, that instead of these spotlights being oriented on me, that they would be turned and oriented on you. Because you have just as much responsibility to be occupied with these matters that we're considering week in and week out. Don't just put that on me. It's on you as well. We all have the onus is on us. We all have the responsibility to be walking in these eternal matters. That's what's characteristic of third race minds. They're not occupied with great value matters. Man, sure, you got to visit Walmart. <laughs> sure, you got to deal with some great value stuff from time to time. But you're not to be occupied with them. Let me just give you a couple of tips, practical helps, I think, to put your mind to work on God things. The first of those that I, I would really encourage is to take some notes during the teaching and preaching of the Word. Some of you really don't need to do that because you're riveted 
And I can see it in your faces. I can see this attentiveness. But even the ones who are riveted, if I were to do a little quiz for everyone who was here last week, if I were to do a little quiz right now and you had no opportunity to look back at your notes or to ask your wife <laughs> that you're sitting next to has a better memory than you, that's the way we, we are, Christy. Uh, what, what last Sunday's message was about? How many of you would recall that last Sunday's message was about growing into Christ? Man, it's only been a week. We're not talking about a long period of time. And we're talking about eternal matters. How easily do we brain dump those? How easily do we come in here and then before we get to our car, it's gone? Let me just encourage you, take notes. Take notes. It's a great way to be engaged and involved in a message that's, that's coming every single week. Take notes and be attentive to it. And the cool thing is, is a nice little Benny that you'll have is you'll have a cool little notebook. And if you're a man, you probably need to make something manly, like with burlap or something. Camouflage. Make it manly. Make it your own. You don't want doilies or anything like that on it. Flowers. Get something really manly that says, this is my book, and I'm going to take some manly notes in here, and I'm going to be the man in my household, and I'm going to walk in what's being preached and taught every single week. You're going to find that your mind is going to be occupied with eternal matters more so when you do that than when you just come and sit and soak, and you're off to lunch. And what you heard week in and week out is just dumped. I do it too. I do it too. Man, we need to be occupied though with these eternal matters. Take notes. Get you a cool little notebook. The next little tip I'll just share with you is read some books. I, I, I've done this at times over the, over the course of our, our journey together in the last 14 years where I've asked folks, hey, what are you reading? And I think I want to be more intentional about doing that again. What are you reading when I'm talking to guys? What are you reading right now? What are you reading? I had uh, dinner with Clay and Corey Petzold this last week, and Clay was telling me about something he read in Knowing God. Let me, uh, I'm going to quiz you on something. How long have you been reading Knowing God? Be honest. Okay, two and a half years. All right. It's not a race. It's not a race. That's the cool thing. He's been reading and meditating on and thinking on these Knowing God sort of what I would call some really deep devotional thoughts for two and a half, three years. Man, if you're sitting here thinking, man, my mind's not really occupied with a lot of eternal matters, how about reading something? How about reading something? If you don't have this responsibility that I have to stand and deliver each week, and you're wondering, man, how can I sort of um, commit myself to reading something that, that matters, grab another buddy in your life group and commit to reading through something with them or reading through it maybe with your spouse or with a friend or a family member. Commit to reading something that's something good. Knowing God by J.I. Packer is a great place to go. Uh, here's a few others. Chosen by God, R.C. Sproul. The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul. On the Incarnation, if you like, man, I really would like to read something ancient that's not hard to read. How about On the Incarnation by a guy named Athanasius? Awesome, awesome books that will occupy your mind with eternal thoughts like third race people do. God is the Gospel is another one of my favorites by John Piper. Third race, third race folks aren't to think like Gentiles. That's the point of this passage. They're not to live like, they're not to walk like Gentiles. Our citizenship was hard won, and our lives need to reflect our new identity. Let's pray. God, I look forward to what you're going to show us in these next few weeks as Paul contrasts this lost life with the found life and this old race with the new. Lord, I pray that our teeth have been cut this morning and that we've been, uh, that there's been an appetite that's been cultivated among us where we look forward to what's in store in these next few weeks. Lord, I pray that there might even be some uh, Holy Spirit-fueled conviction over different things this morning. Lord, I pray for those that may have sin in their lives that's unrepentant, um, who might be frighteningly comfortable with that sin, Lord, that there will be some pain. Lord, that as a result of this message, maybe that they'll be quickened to some pain. That they'll look to a friend or a brother or a sister in a life group or in their family to help them walk through that. 
Lord, I pray you'll be glorified in the outcome there where you'll get every bit of the glory in lives that are transformed to look holy and to be holy. Lord, too, I pray that you will just teach us to occupy our minds with eternal matters. I pray that you will show us the temporariness, the folly, the vanity of how we spend a lot of our time and what we occupy our minds with a lot of the time, Lord. I pray that you would quicken us to matters that will outlast bedtime and even outlast our lifetimes. Lord, I pray as a result of this message for some real practical things, like I pray for a couple guys that will get together and read a book that's worth something. God, I pray as a result of this time that we spent together that somebody will get a cool manly notebook and will just start scrawling out manly notes every single week. And by the grace and work of the Holy Spirit, that they will walk better as a result of this time that we've spent together as they walk in those notes and they walk in your word. Lord, I'm entrusting these matters to you. There's nothing that we can conjure up. There's nothing that we can force. There's nothing that we can press It's ultimately got to be your work. So I turn it over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 6 is a treasure for me. Lots happened in John chapter 6 for me in my journey of faith. And in some ways in the life of this church, um, we were preaching through the book of John for the first few years at Crosspoint here. um, And John 6 is a treasure for lots of folks, I think. Um, The chapter begins with Jesus feeding the, the multitudes. He feeds them, and then he walks on the water that night as he crosses the Sea of Galilee. The, the crowds that he'd fed the day before, that he'd preached to the day before, lots of the crowds had found their way around to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, um, and he resumed his sermon with them. Uh, in verse 25, listen to what he says. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus had a great way of not answering questions that were often asked and pointing to really what's behind the question. And Jesus answered them. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're here for something temporary. You're after me for the wrong reasons. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. If you want to know what the work of God is, what you ought to be up to, what you're called to, this is the work of God, singular, that you believe in him whom he has sent. We do this with food every week. We believe together with a meal Every single week. We celebrate that we are walking in something that is eternal. This meal in and of itself, there's nothing special about the bread or the cup. But it's more than just a bread and cup. We are having a meal with an eternal God. And we are celebrating and enjoying together an eternal work. Something that won our life, hard won, that won our identity as third race people. So let's distribute the elements and we'll enjoy this eternal meal together.